All righty. So if you uh, nobody printed out a a worksheet, did you? Did anybody print out my notes so you could do this instead of me? Um, when I when I went back through them, uh, welcome, Jeremy. When I went back through them, I realized that as you study Ruth, you you need to do several sidebars, and that's what I called them in the notes. So. So you got to understand leveret marriage and you've got to understand gleaning and you got to understand the notion of a kinsman redeemer. You got to understand that it was the time of the judges and that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And you, you kind of have to have all of that as background. And it, it, it all came together in what I said Sunday that, that all of this is just God working behind the scenes. That we don't always know how he's working. But tonight, the first sidebar that I kind of have to deal with is that we talked about leveret marriage. But we're introduced to a term uh, here, especially in chapter four, uh, the term kinsman redeemer. Um, I'm sorry, chapter three. The term kinsman redeemer in uh, the Hebrew language, the, the way that it transliterates into English is G O dash E L, go L. And it's uh, there's a longer uh, version of that for Hebrew, but it's sort of a um, it's leveret marriage, but it's a little more in leveret marriage. The uh, the goal was that a man who died would not die without an heir. But in the in the Hebrew uh, family structure, the idea of land was very very important. And if uh, so the when the twelve tribes were divided land, that was that was sacred. Uh, when when Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, messed up so badly, uh, the, the the talk was that their land would be taken away from them, and that would be that would be the worst thing that could happen. So the idea of Goel is that a provision was built into the law that if someone lost their land due to uh, poverty or death or misfortune, that if the the provenance of ownership, if the title search could establish that that was their clan's property or that was the land belonging to their clan, there was a provision that somebody in the clan could step forward and say, I will be the Goel, I would be the kinsman redeemer. And sometimes it involved marrying somebody and sometimes it didn't. This this story with Boaz and Ruth, it just happens to put the two together to where the, the air would be produced. But the main thing that's going on in chapter three is not about the air, it's about the land. Because technically, a child that Ruth would bear, if it was a leveret situation, that child would not be listed in the genealogy as the child of Boaz would be listed as the child of Malon because Malon was the dead husband of Ruth 
And, and so Boaz was not a brother. He never lived with the family. He was a, a distant kinsman, so he could serve as Goel, but not necessarily. The, the romance part of it was just sort of a, a, a fun afterthought. Does that make sense? So the, the main thing that's going on in here, and, and, and let me go ahead and jump to the spiritual part of it, is that we have all been in a place where we have felt tremendous spiritual loss. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We have, for whatever reason, we used to be uh, full and now we are empty, in the words of, of Naomi. We used to be rich, but now we're poor. We used to be close to God, now we feel far from him. We used to be full of spirit, and now we're bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, I'm bitter. And 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 so when, when we have this, this kinsman redeemer vibe that's going throughout chapter three, and then it extends into the, the negotiation at the city gate in chapter four, we, we cannot read it with a, an academic lens. We have to go, I am Naomi. I've lost spiritually. I, I've lost my land. I've lost my footing. I need someone to step in for me. I can't do it myself. I, I can't rescue myself. Naomi had no means. She had no man to stand up for her. She needed an, an, an outsider who was not part of her immediate circle, an outsider yet part of the clan who would step forward and be her redeemer because the law built in that, that, that you are entitled to a land. God created us to receive his spirit. He created us to receive his son. He created us to be redeemed by his son. But it's only when we realize that we're at the end of ourselves that we can fully apprehend the gift that is the gospel. So, so the first sidebar is that you, you kind of have to get uh, your mind around the idea of Goel. So now we're ready to dive into chapter three. There are three distinct scenes in chapter three. Um, the first uh, five verses, uh, and then chapter, uh, then verse six through about verse 15, and then 15 through 18. So if this is act three in Ruth, chapter three in Ruth, there are three distinct scenes within that. And I call them the negotiation, the execution, and the resolution of the plan. So, so Naomi uh, realizes finally that Ruth is in the field of Boaz. Talked about that Sunday. Her, her chance chanced upon a chance. And we would call it coincidence the, the, the narrator here is very clear in wanting us to know that it's providence, that this is God working behind the scenes. 
Now, again, for us to say that, we can say it flippantly. Oh, God's always at work behind the scenes. But we can't appreciate it unless we grasp the desperation of Naomi. Unless we grasp that she was she was out of options. Um, she was she was had had no cards left to play. And all of a sudden, Ruth comes home with an apron full of barley. And Naomi says, Where'd you get that? Oh, there's a really nice guy that owns a field. Uh oh, what's his name? Boy. Oh, I know him. He is our kinsman redeemer. He's he's one of our, she said, one of our redeemers is the way she said it. And so all of a sudden, we understand that Boaz knows that Naomi is in his clan. And Naomi now knows that Boaz is in her clan. Doesn't make any difference to Ruth. She's an immigrant. She's She's just kind of along for it. And so we started chapter three with um, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? You remember us uh, talking about that word rest? That it can equate with the word shelter. That it's the, and then in a little bit, when uh, back in chapter two, when, uh, when Naomi, when uh, uh, Boaz was blessing Ruth and he said, may, may Yahweh cover you with his wings. May he shelter you. May he give you rest. And so all of these were, were all the same kind of idea. And Naomi's going, and it's a rhetorical question, right? Of course, you should seek rest for your daughter-in-law. But Naomi is kind of coming up against her own mortality. I'm not going to live forever. And I am beyond childbearing age. There's, there's no body to take care of you. It's a, it's a patriarchal culture. Unless there is a man who will step in to our lives, you are destined to glean for the rest of your days. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. It was a, a, a way to provide, but but it seemed like God had more in mind. My Bible says, "Seek security for you, and right. I will be the Right, seek security, seek rest, seek shelter. We we get where she's going, and it's like I said, it's rhetorical, but it's still, uh, it still it sort of makes sense. Is not another rhetorical question, but not. Is not Boaz our relative? Relative is far too weak a word. It should be, is he not our kinsman redeemer? Is he not uh, in the clan? He's a man of the clan, as I said on Sunday. So he was the part of the eliminate. I think that the, the word for clan, yeah, Elimelech was in the clan of uh, the Bethlehemites or the Ephraimites, and we we came across that term in chapter one. So the tribe was that they were the tribe of Judah, because Bethlehem is in Judah. They were the clan of the Ephraimites within Bethlehem. So 
whether the entire town was in the same clan or whether a subset of the population was in the clan, we know that there is a, a, an extended family structure that they keep referring to called a clan. And so um, Boaz was uh, a prominent, wealthy uh, person in the clan. We learned that back in chapter two. So he's our relative. Uh, see, he is winnowing barley tonight. Now that's more of a key phrase than you would think because, well, anybody got an idea? Why is that a key phrase? When do you winnow the barley? When do you, when do you separate the wheat from the chaff? At the end of the season. Right. So she, Naomi is realizing, hey, wait a minute. Ruth has seen this guy every day because she's been gleaning. But you can only glean for a season. You can only glean during harvest season. It's about eight weeks, maybe 10 weeks of harvest. So the barley and wheat harvest is about two months. Once that's over, the fields are fallow. They're, they, they are uh, left to, to regain nutrients through the rain and through whatever. They, they're not planted immediately. And so the, the net was a sense of urgency. Hey, if something's going to happen, better happen soon because Boaz is not going to be around every day. She's not, he's not going to come out to these fields. Ruth would have to run into him in town. And, uh, and so uh, probably she realizes there's an urgency. And so Naomi hatches a plan that is very self-explanatory. And uh, I found a preacher who summarized it. Be attractive, be attentive, be assertive, be available. <laughs> I like it. Send that out. So be, be attractive. Take a bath. Uh, wash yourself a little perfume. Be, uh, be attractive. Be attentive. What he tells you to do, do that. Watch where he goes. Watch where he sleeps. So, so watch for opportunity. And, 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 and some writers have, have taken this farther than I would to say that there are times we wait on God and there are times we have a word from God that says it's time to work for God. There, there are times we need to step forward. Uh, Oswald Chambers wrote about that a couple of times this week in my utmost, that, that there's a time for, for waiting for an answer. But if God has given you an answer, wait a minute, isn't this guy one of our relatives? Boing. Isn't this the, <laughs> we, we, we need a man. This is a man. It's, it's not this manhunt gold digger thing. It's like God has given you this holy arrangement. He is Goel. He is he is the kinsman redeemer. He is he is the answer. It's the it's the old gospel story of the guy who was on the roof of his house when the floodwaters came up. Yeah. Right. Lord, why didn't you save me? I sent you a boat, a helicopter. What do you what what more do you want? And it's like Naomi is realizing that. God has given her an answer, and the answer is Goel. The answer is that. So the time of waiting for 
God's will is over with. God has made his will plain, at least for her. So she says, wash it up. Listen to what he does. Watch what's going on. Make the move. And then make available. And, and basically, most writers say that what Naomi was supposed to do is to take off her mourning clothes and put on her best dress. Even the poorest peasant girl had a dress that she wore to special occasions. And, and apparently uh, her mourning clothes signaled her inavailability to the young suitors in town. But you mean Ruth was supposed to, Ruth was in mourning clothes. Her husband had died. And I don't know how long she was supposed to stay in mourning. We we don't know when he died. We we don't know if if their death precipitated the the return to Bethlehem. We just don't have that information. That the narrator doesn't think that's part of the story. The narrator thinks the part of the story is it's time for Ruth to get back in the game. And <laughs> and in order for that to happen, some things need to unfold. And so God inspired uh, Naomi to come up with a plan. Right? Like be attractive, be assertive, be attentive, be available. So she says, wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and between the lines, take off your mourning, take off your 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 look of uh, the widow, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known until he has finished eating and drinking. Now I wrote in my notes, buzzed but not drunk. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think he was incoherent, but he, he probably went to sleep with a sort of a warm glow. He was mellow. He, he, was, he was definitely mellow. Now, we've talked about the threshing floor before, right? That, that they didn't have the machines, so they depended on Mother Nature. And so they would take uh, their, their barley straw or their wheat straw, and they would find a hilltop with a, a breeze, and usually a threshing floor was a hard surface on an elevated place where the, the wind could blow across. And they would throw the wheat straw in the air, and the lighter chaff or the trash, the husks would blow away and the heavier barley or, or wheat grain would settle. Now, the reason I brought that up, can anybody quote Luke twenty-two thirty-one? 31? Yeah. <laughs> Simon, Simon, Satan has come to me and he has demanded to sift you like wheat. Yet I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail you, that when you have returned, you can strengthen the others. So if the devil has a pitchfork, Simon was a pile of hay, and he says, I'm going to throw you up in the air and see what good settles and what bad blows away. And so this, this notion of separating the wheat from the chaff it is throughout Scripture, and, and it's an ongoing Symbolism. Threshing floor that David called. Yeah. 
The Temple Mount was a threshing floor, the city on a hill, uh, Jerusalem. It's the Temple Mount. So, yeah, David bought a threshing floor, which became the temple in Jerusalem. So why would the men sleep on the threshing floor? Yeah, they're guarding. They've done all the work. They've they've winnowed the wheat. They've separated the wheat from the, the chaff, the barley from the chaff. They they Now they have this pile of grain that's extremely valuable. And... Uh, and they would sleep by it through the party of the, we're done, you know, great job, well done. Let's get a beer and maybe more. So now I, I, I need to be indelicate here for just a moment. But since you're my Wednesday night crowd, I think you'll probably allow it. Have any of you ever heard of the term a truck stop prostitute? That any, anybody want to describe it so I don't have to? They're pulling in these truck stops. These guys are there. All right. Knocking on the door of the truck. All right. So it is assumed that there were threshing floor prostitutes who knew that these guys were. These men were alone, little drunk, really happy. The work is done. Do you need a little comfort there, sailor? And so what Ruth was sort of imitating, the, the reason she wasn't thought to be unusual as a woman on the threshing floor is that that wasn't that uncommon. And so we sort of pick up the sexual vibe almost from the beginning. What's she doing there when all these men are getting sloppy drunk? What, are, what is she doing there when then all these men are at home or are in the, 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 the field with their wives at home? What, what is she doing there? And I think Naomi understood that. But there was there's something that's very going on here and, I, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute but there's there's something that really feels like God is protecting her just like he protected her from sexual assault in the fields there was this ongoing thought that she was subject to sexual molestation at almost any time and so Naomi was very careful to say don't reveal yourself Wait until he has finished eating and drinking. In order to be attentive, watch where he goes. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, everything that you say, I will do. So that closes out scene one, right? Ruth has her instructions. Naomi has revealed a plan. And uh, and if Ruth had any uh, thoughts that um, maybe it was one 
looking too good. She didn't express them. You call that negotiate? Is that what you call it? Yeah, but if you look at what happened, look at the things Naomi told her to do, and and let's let's return to the spiritual sense. She said, "Wash yourself. Wash yourself. Get rid of the old. Get rid of the grime." Uh, be ready to approach a redeemer having having taken stock and cleansed yourself to the best of your ability. Then she said, anoint yourself. Uh, prepare to meet someone special. Um, then, then she said, change your clothes. Take off the morning clothes. Put on clothing that expands. Uh, uh, present yourself to him. Uh, and again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is righteous to forgive our sins, cleanse us from unrighteousness. The, the idea throughout the narrative in the gospel of taking off your grave clothes and putting on your righteous clothes, uh, that, that the, the stench of sin in God's nostrils is offensive, but the sweet aroma of salvation the sweet aroma so so there is a there, there's something you don't want to miss here that when we approach god for our redemption there's not anything we can do to cause the redemption ruth was completely at the mercy of boaz's response she said present yourself to him paul said that right don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. So this, this we, we, we can't miss the steps that she took because they are, are very symbolic to the way we present ourselves to God to say, okay, I've got some stuff in my life I need you to wash clean. I want to present. I want to anoint. I want to get rid of the grave clothes. I have a handwritten note in my Bible that this uncovering the feet and then lying down with them is what a servant would do. And so she was presenting herself as his servant. Until she started talking. And we'll get that in a second. The last thing that she said, what is the last line in chapter 3, verse 5? All that you say, I will do. She presented herself as obedient. Now, it's like, God, I want everything from you. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know about that. So, so she washed, she anointed, she changed her clothes. She, uh, she was uh, uh, presented herself as, as available for redemption. But then she went a step further. She didn't say some of what you said I'll do. Uh, I'm going to pick and choose what I'm going to do. All that you said, I will do. And and that's going to come up again uh, here in a minute. All right. So the execution of the plan. Last week, I geeked out with uh, the term uh, chiasm. There's another literary device that is used quite often in the Bible and it's called inclusio and the best way I can say inclusio is that it's a 
It's a parenthesis. And so a section starts with a parenthesis. And when you see the parenthesis close, you'll know that that section is somewhat self-contained. So hang with me for a second. I really am going to do Bible study, but I'm geeking out a little bit. Verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor. Verse 15. What does it say? The last sentence in verse 15. I hear it. Anyway, she went and found it. So she held it and he measured six. No, no, verse 15 of chapter three. Not chapter two, but chapter three. Give me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. No. Then she went into the city. Now, how many of you, how many of your translations say he went into the city? Uh oh, <laughs> we got a pronoun problem. reliable texts have the word he it's a it's a masculine pronoun but some of the translators in the the middle ages really had a problem with that because they wanted to resolve what happened to Ruth they they wanted to resolve that she went down and she went back she went down and then she went to her mother-in-law right it's probably best rendered he because chapter four tells us we had to get Boaz away from the threshing floor and into the city where he could go to the city gate and do some business. It doesn't really matter if it's he or she because they both left, right? But she went to Naomi's house. We, we find that out at the very end of chapter three. She didn't go into it. Now, possibly Naomi's house was in the city, but that's not specific here. It makes a lot more sense to honor the original language, which probably says he, doesn't make any difference. What does make a difference is that that's the inclusio. She went to the threshing floor. She left and went to the city. He left and went to the city. There's this, you go to the threshing floor, you leave the threshing floor. So everything in between those two brackets is a teaching unit kind of all by itself. So then you try to figure out, okay, what's the guts? What's the main thing in that teaching unit? What's the, what, what's the lesson that's within the lesson? Okay, in chapter three, we have the, the prologue or the instruction, scene one. Here's the plan. Here's the strategy. Be attractive. Be assertive. Be available. All that. Now we have the execution of the plan and the inclusio brackets where that is in the story so it clearly ends with the end of chapter 15 that's the execution of the plan now sorry about that deep but 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 you look at what the story is and now she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law commanded her 
when Boaz had eaten and drunk, it doesn't say he got drunk or was drunk. Although, like I said, I think he's buzzed because it says his heart was merry. That's the Hebrew expression for buzzed. Probably wouldn't have passed a breathalyzer. He went down to the end of his heap of grain. Okay, so he does exactly what Naomi thought he might do. She'd seen it before. Wasn't her first threshing rodeo. And so he does exactly what she said he would do. Ruth is watching. Be attentive. Just watch. Be sure you know which sleeping guy you need. It's going to get dark. Be sure you know who you're going to go see. The, the, the partying has gone on. I, I'm guessing it's, it's early in the morning hours. So she came softly and uncovered his feet to lay down. Okay, there are a number of reasons that I don't believe what some commentators have said that uncovering the feet is a sexual euphemism for exposing his nakedness. One, when that euphemism is used in the scripture, it's always followed by uncovered his nakedness. Same words are being used, but there are a lot of words that we use that could mean a lot of different things. Um, so, so one writer said that was the purpose, that he'd wake up because he goes, Man, my toes are cold. <laughs> Something going on here. I think that she uncovered his feet, and then I think she laid beside him. I don't think she laid across his feet. That would be terrifically uncomfortable for both of them. Yes. He might, verse 8 says, behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Yeah, she was so there with him. So she wasn't <clears throat> by his side if she was at his feet. But I don't think she was laying on his feet. No, but I think I think that she she cuddled a little bit. She she let him know she was there. I don't think so at all. I yeah, I think that uh, two are better than one. When one falls, who is there to pick him up? And so she at midnight, the man was startled. Now. That's one of the things that made me think purity rather than impurity. Because if he had called for a prostitute, he would have been startled. If he had uh, responded to her presence with sexual overtones, he wouldn't have been startled. He was, he was truly startled at her very presence. And he said, oh, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? She answered softly, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Uh, some of your translations may say, uh, lift up the edge of your garment or cover me with the edge of your garment. Covering over your, spread your covering. Right. The... Again, there's a lot of room in the vocabulary. The ESV says, spread your wings. What does yours say, Jeremy? Uh, mine, I didn't make any sense. And mine says, uh, spread the corner of your garment over me. Right. 
and 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 That's to this true. day at a Hebrew wedding, the groom covers the bride with his garment. That's the that is so so she was not saying, let me get under your blanket. She was saying, Will you marry me? That, that she was being assertive and she was not gonna let anybody misunderstand why she was there. Will you marry me? Okay. And the word there, maidservant, a minute ago you said uh, that it, it would be typical for a servant. But the word maidservant is more powerful than slave servant. It's, 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 uh, I hate to use the word handmaiden because that's been co-opted with a horrible imagery, but but handmaiden meant someone who would be eligible to have your child in a reputable way. Somebody who would who would give you an heir. So a, a slave could not give you an heir. Uh, not in that sense. Although, obviously, Abraham, Abraham had children with both his servants and his uh, wife. But... Yeah. But this right away says, for you're a close relative, that's what makes us know that right. she's saying you're my kinsman redeemer, basically. But she elevated herself in her language okay. past slavery, even past Hebrew servants. She okay. said, I am I am your mate. I am eligible. I am done mourning, and you're the guy I want. And so she, this is clearly uh, a marriage proposal. So, yes, there is a way to read sexuality into this. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, if any of us are young enough to know that if our, uh, if, if our child came to us and said, I'm going to hook up with some friends. Well, we're going, okay, y'all are going bowling or something. But the word hookup has... Um, a very uh, darker side to it that says if I'm hooking up with this young lady, it, it so so the words that are here are not necessarily powerful enough in themselves to lean either way. So you got to look at the context. So yes, uncover your feet. Your that is a sexual euphemism for genitalia. Uh, spread your blanket over me. Uh, of course, that can be. Uh, uh, connoted a lot of different ways. Lie down, spread your covering. That's a, it says here in Ezekiel that that is a way that uh, it signifies that, okay, you are mine. Mm -hmm. It says, Ezekiel 16 8, it says, then I passed, it says, uh, later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment. Yep. Okay, stop there. Cover your nakedness. So, so yes, spread your wings over me is a sexual euphemism, but it's almost always related to nakedness. Ezekiel was talking about his wife. And, and so, yeah, so he was talking about his wife. She refers to herself as a handmaiden. 
or uh, or your your maid servant, which is clearly a a woman who is eligible for marriage, but who has not been claimed by anyone else. And so then she goes into the the rest of the language. She says, "For you are a redeemer." Now the particular language of spread your wings. Do you remember that Boaz said the same thing back in chapter two, uh, verse twelve? He said, "May the Lord repair repay you. May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." So she's basically using his own words to to kind of seal the deal. You know, you said that it would be good if the Lord spread His wings. What if you're the Lord's instrument to spread wings? It's it's like she used his own words. And uh, now, why was Boaz reluctant? I just don't think he was very self-aware. I, I, I think he, well, he was a lot older than she was. The scripture tells us that he didn't, he didn't think he was eligible for the Ruth lottery. I mean, when she took off her morning clothes, that was a signal. Okay, boys, the shop's open. And and he assumed that there would be this parade of suitors much younger than himself. But that's not who God had revealed to her or to Naomi. He had said, you need to be picky about your redeemer. And that's not a bad tweet for us. We, we better be picky about our Redeemer. What are we going to let save us? Is it materialism? Is it the, the, uh, the attractiveness of youth? Is it, is it about a young, virile man? Or is it about the perfect plan that God has? Yeah, Skip? Maybe Boaz was a little um, cautious on the next, what he was going to do, because he still, he wasn't next in line. Um, as a kinsman redeemer, there was another relative that was closer to Naomi. So you think you'd already done a little homework? It's pretty proper, like uh, the way the design. Says it. You know what I mean? I don't think he's, you know somebody's going to wiggle, you know, manipulate a situation or wiggle around. It's, it's a small town, right? Okay, so here's why I don't think that there was sexual impropriety here and it, and it goes directly to what Richard just said that that if Boaz had considered the possibility he knew he was a redeemer but he knew there was another one that was in line before him and and there's a there was a obviously if you think about when somebody dies without a will who's eligible uh, now Louisiana has uh, what's called forced inheritance they have to find a relative. Uh, I have a trunk in my house that is Judy's mother's third cousin's whatever. They they came and found her and said he died, and uh, and we need you to be the executor of the estate because we got to give all this stuff away. I said, can I have that sixty-five Dodge Dart in the back with fifteen thousand miles on it? And they said, no, that's a value. It's going to be sold, but you're going to have this trunk. <laughs> It's a French thing. Also. All right. So I have a trunk. So he was asleep 
for most of this. That's why he's startled, right? So if he is trying to co-opt her virtue, he's asleep, all right? She initiates this. And her language is such that she's tracking marriage the whole time. He's, he's not doing that. He refers to her in chapter 3, verse 11. He calls her a woman of excellence. Anybody think of a, a time that phrase is used somewhere else? In the Proverbs. Proverbs 31. There are many women in the world, but you are the best of all. You are the woman of excellence. Lemuel, who wrote uh, Psalm 31, Proverbs 31, he wrote that as the ideal woman, the woman of excellence. Boaz refers to her that way. If she was acting like a threshing poor prostitute, he would not have referred to her as a woman of excellence. Well, he also points out that the people in the town know that you are a worthy woman. I mean, it, they don't say they suspect you're a worthy woman. I mean, it's, they, it's no it's question about her character. So why did you tell her to stay the night? Didn't want to see her drinking out. Yeah. Uh, some yeah. Some, some drunk guy laying beside his grain pile <laughs> grabs a robe thinking she's the truck stop lady and, uh, and and does what he wants to do. She's she's an unprotected woman. So he says, stay till it's light. And then he essentially told his servants, make sure nobody knows she was here, but make sure she gets out of here okay. So the story goes on. She proposes marriage, and he responds, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. You have not gone after the young man. Yeah, I'm a redeemer, but I would have expected you to go after a younger one. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you have asked for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You are a woman of excellence. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet I there is a redeemer nearer than I. Dick, that's where I go. Dun, dun, dun. Because I'm going, Ruth and Naomi are going, oh, snap. <laughs> this is the one we want. And, and so there's this, this moment of drama where they have to wait a full 24 hours to see how this thing's going to shake out. Remain tonight. In the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. You're taken care of. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So stay right here until the morning. And then so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that this woman came to the threshing floor and he said, bring the garment that you're wearing. He didn't want to send her home empty. Bring the garment that you are wearing. If this was untoward in any way, she would probably not be wearing any garments. The woman who was dragged before Jesus in John chapter 8 
see this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And everything about it says that she's laying naked at the feet of Jesus, just trying to make herself small so the rocks won't hurt quite as much. So she's still covered up. And he said, hold out your apron. I'm not going to send you home to Naomi empty-handed. And so everything about this in context says virtue. And all the people that say there's euphemism here, they're not wrong. But but it's the, the narrator is such a great storyteller. He, he's, he's introducing this tension. And, and it's almost like the sexual tension is that of an engaged couple, right? The, the honeymoon's coming. And, 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 and you get this master storyteller giving you this. But don't forget that in the story, God is the lover. God is the redeemer. God is the one who will take us into his home, who will give us a name, who will give us a place, who will give us a token of his love. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here's my token. Here's the ring. And, and we can't ever lose sight that this is talking not about a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. That's, that is the symbolism of the great redemption plan that God has written across every single book of the Bible. So then the story ends. Then she went to the city. He went to the city. All God's children went to the city. And then chapter 3 verse 16 starts the last section. Uh, when she came to her mother-in-law, how did it go? Told her what the man had done. Naomi said in the Hebrew, yes. Uh, these six measures of barley, we don't know how much that is. Some have tried to say that's an, an effort. It's not. It, that, that would be 36 gallons of, no, that's not right. So he, he gave her enough in her apron to, to make a difference and to still let her walk. And uh, she said, you must not go back empty handed. Verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I can only imagine that was hours of just agony. Um couple of things just to, to kind of wrap it up. I still believe that what God has given us is one of the greatest short stories that's ever been written. I think there are literary devices. There are, there are moments of tension. There are good guys. There are bad guys. There's unfortunate things that happen that are nobody's fault. There are, are poor decisions that reap their uh, rewards. There are uh, consequences that are overcome because of the redemptive acts of others. But we we miss it. It's like in the story of the prodigal son. I was mowing my yard one day thinking about my son and how much I wanted to kill him. And I was going I am the father and he is the prodigal. And God said, no, no, no. I am the father and you are the prodigal. If we ever forget that the symbolism in these great stories 
that that yes, the writer put the the sexual tension in there because God is a complete God. He He made us. He created us. He He understands us. And the intrigue that goes with that is almost like him saying what Nancy said to me, you dirty old man. Stop thinking that way. I meant purity all along. I just want you to see that I can rescue anything from anything. I am always at work. I can take what man meant for evil and turn it into good. I can take the most unfortunate circumstances. And even when they are completely dark, this side of heaven, there is redemption because there is a, a bigger story. And of course, chapter four tells us the bigger story with the great sandal swap. So this this story wasn't true. I mean, if Ruth hadn't been widowed and hooked up with Boaz, and, and Boaz and her, Obed, Obed, and then uh, Jesse, Jesse, and then David. Well, Robert's going to deal with this in his sermon, which is he's going to handle the last several verses. So Bridget is this week, then I'm the following week, and then Robert's going to finish it up. And Robert and I agreed that we were going to save the best punchline of all for last. God had to get him back to Bethlehem. God had to get him back to Bethlehem. And so at the end of this whole story, we get the genealogy. Because God had to get him back to Bethlehem. Now the writer of the story only knew that David was from Bethlehem. And so he wanted to give honor to the city. What he didn't know is that Micah 5.2 says the savior of the world needs to be from Bethlehem. <laughs> All right. That's enough. Uh, we will uh, pick this back up next week with chapter 4. Uh, be sure you're here Sunday. Bridget's going to do a marvelous job with it. I told her she didn't have to tell, talk about any of the symbolism. She could just read it at face value. So for her, feet are going to be feet. <laughs>